At age 16, I gave my life to Jesus, not fully understanding the implications, and still don't understand the implications to their fullest of what that means for my life. At age 18, I went off to college, where I would where I decided to not just pursue my life, but my entire career after being a minister of God's word. At age 21, I married the woman of my dreams, and I was introduced to a healthy Christian marriage through her parents. At age 26, I moved my family to the outer edge of the country to work with a church that I believe God is going to do amazing, amazing things through. And in three months, I'm going to graduate with Master of Divinity, an eight-year journey that's finally coming to an end. And all of these things, and many other things in my life, many other experiences, they've shaped my understanding of who God is. And these experiences, they've molded and colored and textured and created this image of, of, of what God looks like in my mind, of how I think God works in the world. And here's the crazy thing, is that we all have our own mold of who God is in our mind. And the likelihood is, is that yours looks much different than mine does. Perhaps some of yours are much smaller, maybe more abstract. Likelihood is, is that many of yours are far grander and more vibrant and colorful. But we all have molds. We all have an understanding of who God is and how he works in the world based off of our experiences of what got us to right here. And what happens as life goes on is that we, we have multiple experiences, both good and bad. So sometimes in this life, I experience pains and sufferings. Over this weekend, I, I was scrolling through Facebook, and I saw that there was another public shooting in Washington. And as I dialed that in my mind, and I thought, you know, when is this ever going to end? And then I, I hear reports of, of rescue teams still in the Bahamas, searching through the rubble left in the wake of Hurricane Dorian, and the body count continues to rise. And then I look around this room, and I see missing faces of pretty remarkable people experiencing some pretty terrible things right now. And I add those experiences to my mold of who I think God is, of how I understand he works in the world. But this mold that I've created, it doesn't just include the bad things that happen in life, it also includes positive things. For example, I'm a part of a church that's, that's actively seeking people and caring for their hurts. I mean, we have 2,000 diapers out there that are being collected for mothers and families in need in our community. Over 1,000 items have been donated just from this church alone to be donated to the Bahama Relief efforts. Every year, I witness this church give around $50,000 for mission efforts around the world. Christmas Eve, I see hundreds of families in the community given a hefty meal. And even in our youth, I see things. 
I mean, our youth spent an entire week this past summer serving people in South Carolina. Some of them went to a daycare, and they cleaned the inside and the outside so those families and those workers and those kids could have a safe and clean place. Some of them went to apartments in downtown, the run-down part of town, and just played with kids who probably don't get that kind of attention in their life. And still, some even went to a special needs home. And there, they, they loved on beautiful, unique people for an entire week. They just loved on them. In all of these experiences, both good and bad, they fit inside of this mold. This mold of how I understand God works in the world, of who I think he is, it's an image. So this morning, we're going to be reading in Mark chapter 8, beginning in the very first verse of Mark chapter 8. And the text reads this. It says, In those days, when, a, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus, he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they, they have been with me now for three days, and they've had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry right now, they're going to faint on their way home. And some of them have come from a far way off. And so his disciples, they hear Jesus say this, and they respond to him and said, how can one, how can one person feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and given thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And so they set the food before the people, for the crowd. And there was also a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before the crowd. And the crowd, they ate, and they were satisfied. And the disciples, they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were 4,000 people there, and then Jesus sent them away. Okay, so maybe reading this, <laughs> you're thinking, am I experiencing deja vu? <laughs> like, haven't, haven't we already talked about a story in which Jesus has fed thousands of people? And the answer to that is almost. <laughs> in chapter 6, we definitely heard a story of Jesus feeding 5,000 men, plus probably women and children. And then you have this separate account here. And so aren't you glad, first off, just reading this for what it is, aren't you glad that we have a God who can do a lot with a little? We have multiple accounts of a God who sees the need of a crowd of people, and it's his desire to do something about it. In fact, that desire is far greater than my desire to go to Sonny's for lunch today. And it's far greater than your desire to get out early so that you can go to Sonny's <laughs> later today. Right? In fact, the Greek word used, notice what he says in verse 2. Oh, there's all my spoilers. <laughs> notice what he says. He says, I have compassion on the crowd. I have compassion on the crowd. So let's nerd out just for a second here. That word for compassion is this word. Anybody? Anybody want to try? Splunknizame. It's the white 
26-year-old Middle East or a, a Western way to say it, spognizame, which comes from the root word splogan. Why does that matter? Okay. Well, the literal translation of that word means vital organs or entrails. Isn't that fascinating? Right? Jesus, he has this, this gut-wrenching emotion, this gut-wrenching reaction towards this crowd. It's like something inside of Jesus is turning in his stomach, and he has a desire to do something for this crowd. He is hurting for this crowd. And here is, here is the unique thing, and here's what I love about that word compassion here, is it's only used a couple of times in our, in our Bible in general. Um, it was brought to my attention 11 times in the New Testament, all used by Jesus alone. And it's been used multiple times by Jesus himself in the Gospel of Mark. But he doesn't use this word compassion towards people you might expect him to have compassion for. Right? Jesus doesn't have compassion for his family, at least not this kind of compassion. Mark doesn't say that Jesus has compassion towards his friends or even his disciples, but rather a much more offensive list of people. Right? Jesus has compassion towards lepers and revolutionaries and Gentiles and the demon-possessed. And it's that list that brings us to the key difference between the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6 and the feeding of the 4,000 right here in Mark chapter 8. You see, while the feeding of the 5,000 was towards a Jewish audience, this feeding was towards a much different audience. You see, Jesus is in the Gentile nation, and he has a deep compassion towards a very different group of people. In the same way that Jesus brought saving bread to 5,000 Jews, look what he's doing here. He is now bringing that same saving bread to Gentiles. So why is this significant? Well, last week we began, if you remember, Tracy, he began this journey to the Gentiles that Jesus starts on. So in, in chapter 7, verse 24, we are introduced to a, a Syrophoenician woman. You remember that? That awkward conversation that Jesus has with her? Like, he calls her a dog, and then she says, well, even dogs get to eat off of the table, or the kids' plate, you know, the crumbs that fall. And Jesus kind of likes this banter back and forth, and so he ends up doing what she comes and asks for. He, he heals her daughter. And then you have the very next story. Look, look, look at it. The very next story, it's again to a Gentile man who can't speak and who can't hear. And Jesus does this weird thing. He spits on, touches his tongue, and it's gross and nasty. But all of a sudden, this, this Gentile man, he can hear again. He can speak again. And then what happens? And then we move right into this story. And now Jesus is sitting down with 4,000 Gentiles. And in the same way that he fed the 5,000 Jews, now he is taking care of and he's feeding the 4,000 Gentiles. In this journey of Jesus from Tyre to Sidon to Decapolis, it proves to us that even though the Gentiles are ostracized by the Jews, they're not ostracized by Jesus. Right? A Jewish berating of the Gentiles does not equate to a, gent or a divine berating 
of the Gentiles. And there's a lesson here. Right at the beginning of this story, there's a lesson here for people of God of all ages. And here's what the lesson is, that our enemies, the enemies in our life, whoever they may be or wherever they may be, they are neither forsaken by God, nor are they beyond the gut-wrenching compassion of Jesus. In fact, in fact, it's this list of those who are far way off, the people you wouldn't expect, who are the very object of Jesus' compassion. In fact, it's these Gentile people, these people who are very different, are the ones who are most receptive of Jesus. And the difference between the reactions between the Jews that they, ha they have towards the Gentiles and Jesus as he has to the Gentiles can be seen in the very last section of what we just read. You probably didn't see it. Uh, verse 9, second half, what does it say? He says he sent them away. You see that? I'm not going to put it up here on the screen, but to send somebody away, it's a Greek word, apolein, and it has two different sections of meaning. One side of it is to dismiss or to get rid of. If I want to, if I want to get rid of somebody, get out of here, I would apolein, I would send them out, get out. Likely the Jewish response to the Gentile. Right, there were certain parts in the temple that, that Gentiles were not able to come through. In fact, there were signs by the fences of the temple that says, if you are a Gentile and you walk across this line, you are subject to be stoned to death. And it's by your own doing. You are dismissed. Leave. But here's the crazy thing about that word apolein is it has a completely different meaning. It also means to set free or to liberate. And likely, what Jesus is doing to this crowd of Gentiles. A Savior who feeds the hungry outcasts and then liberates them. Notice what happens next in the story. Oh, that is not what happens next in the story. Uh, many of you, you probably recognize this though, right? Um, so this is uh, a Florida fourth grader. Uh, he's from Florida, fourth grader. His, his school was having a college colors day. You know, you wear your favorite team to, to school. And this boy, he didn't have any UT merchandise. Who would? Uh, one, someone over there would. He didn't have any merchandise. So what does he do? He designs his own design on a t-shirt. He pins it to the shirt. You probably heard the story, right? So he goes to school with, with, his, with this design right here. And it's all fine until lunchtime, where the boy comes back to his home classroom, and he's crying. And what ends up happening is that a group of girls had been making fun of him for his t-shirt. And long story short, uh, this, this story it goes viral, right? The university gets hold of it. Celebrities get a hold of it. Uh, and, and what the university decides to do is they, they make an official t-shirt with this design on it. And they put it on pre-sale, and then some of the proceeds will go to an anti-bullying foundation and all this good stuff, trying to raise awareness. Hey, get this. This shirt, before they were even sending it out, right, in the pre-sale, this shirt sold over 16,000 units. It's crazy. It's crazy. I, I was going to buy one and show it, but they're still not even sending them out. It's like later September, so I was like, I don't want this shirt. <laughs> but it, it would have been a cool illustration. Right, so here's my question. Here's why I bring up this story. 
is why do stories like this inspire us? Like, like think about it. What causes thousands of people to stand up and to support a little boy who they know nothing about? And the reason I think this kind of stuff happens, and the reason I think the biblical authors believe this kind of thing happens, is because it's at the very fabric of, of our image. Like, we were made in the image of a God who has a deep, gut-wrenching care towards the downtrodden, towards those who are being walked over. And there is a deep and wide river of ethical teachings in our Bible that, that tells us if we are going to be a follower of Jesus, then we have to seek justice and we have to seek social justice <laughs> towards people who are suffering and hurting. And the reason that that theme is so persistent all throughout our Bible is not because the authors were, were big fans of the underdogs or even that they were underdogs themselves. The reason that that theme is so persistent is because it is the ultimate example of God's working in the world through Jesus Christ. The only founder of a major religion who died in disgrace not surrounded by the disciples who loved him the most, but completely abandoned by everybody who claimed to be a follower of him, even these Gentiles who he's feeding. Get this, Jesus' salvation, the, the, the saving grace that we receive through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, that only comes to us through his poverty and rejection and weakness, allowing himself to be conquered by death and killed by it. Terry Eagleton, a professor at Lancaster University, he says it this way. He says, what religious faith, what being a Christian, adds to common morality is not some supernatural support. Okay, so being a good person, the Christian faith doesn't just add some like in the, in the sky kind of spiritual element to being a good person. Okay, so what does it add? the grossly inconvenient news that our forms of life must undergo radical disillusion if they are to be reborn as just and compassionate communities. Something has to happen inside of us. There, something radical has to change inside of us, okay? What needs to change? A sign of that change, a sign of that radical disillusion is solidarity with the poor and the powerless. It is here that a new configuration of faith and culture and politics might be born. Said another way, the inconvenience of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is the very thing that gives it meaning and purpose. And as believers in Jesus, right, we are taught that that we wrong God whenever we wrong people who are made in the image of God. You are to love your God with all of your soul, mind, and strength. And you're to love your neighbor as, amen. It's in our fabric. It's who we are. We were made in this image to care for those who are nothing like us. And whenever I wrong somebody, I have to take my focus that I'm just wronging that person. Whenever I lie to somebody, I'm not just depriving them of truth. I'm also wronging God in the process. I am wronging God whenever I break promises to people. 
I am wronging God whenever I'm not poor, but I close my heart to those who are. And I know, I know, if I'm taking an honest look at myself, I know that I'm an oppressor. I oppress people. But I've been saved by the saving grace of Jesus. And if Jesus can save this broken person that stands before you, then you have to know that he can save you, that he can save these Gentiles, and that he can save all of the other outcasts that live in our midst, the homeless, the pregnant girl out of wedlock, the homosexual, the mentally unstable, the one with AIDS, the Republican, the Democrat, the addict, the prostitute, the felon, all of these people that we have counted out, Jesus looks to the crowd with compassion, a gut-wrenching compassion. And he loves them, and he feeds them, and he sets them free. And notice what happens, now notice what happens next in the story. And the Pharisees, they come, and they begin to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And so Jesus, he sighs deeply in his spirit, and he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I tell you, none will be given. And Jesus left them, and he got back into the boat, and he went to the other side. Such a strange little insert, is it not? In fact, it was so strange that I almost left this part out of my sermon completely until someone much wiser came to me and said, you, you have to leave this section in. And I'm glad I listened, because this actually serves as, as the crux of everything that we're going to be talking about this morning. You see, what are the disciples asking for from Jesus? What are they asking for? Proof, what specifically are they asking for? A sign. A sign from heaven. Give us a sign. Now, the sign requested by the Pharisees is not simply in a request for a miracle. In fact, the word for miracle, dynamis, I'm butchering that, sorry. Dynamis, it's not even present in the section, right? That word's not even used here. Instead, simulin is used, sign. I'm seeking a sign. What is a sign? It's a confirmation of Jesus' ministry from God himself. Give us outward proof, compelling proof of divine authority, because if you're working in Jesus' name, or if you're working in God's name, Jesus, if you really are the Messiah, then you will work under the preconceived idea that we have of who God is and how he is working in the world. Give us a sign that you are the one who is going to save Israel, that you are the Messiah who is going to liberate Israel and the Jews. You see, while Jesus has a gut-wrenching compassion towards these Gentiles, the Pharisees certainly do not. Look at their reactions. Right? And this is a key component to the religious leaders' misunderstanding of Jesus. Right? This, is, this is at its core right here. They, the Pharisees, they are looking for a sign from Jesus that proved he is the Messiah that they were expecting. Jesus fit the mold of who God is and how we understand him to be and how he's supposed to work in the world. And you can't blame them. Right? Because they're a product of their culture and their society. I want you to listen to just, I have three verses here from, from Hebrew scripture. I want you just to listen to what they were expecting. 
Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. Isaiah 9.7, Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious. Right, the Pharisees, they want Jesus to prove to them that he is the Messiah that they are expecting. Are you the Messiah who's going to save and liberate the Jews? And if we're not careful, we can be the same way, can't we? If we're not careful, we begin creating molds of who we understand God is and how we understand he should work in the world. And if Jesus doesn't fit into that mold, if God doesn't fit into that mold, then he's not God to us. Because this is God to me, not who he actually is. Right? I am looking for a God who approves of my definition of love, no matter who or what it is with. I am looking for a God who eliminates all suffering in the world right now on my timetable with the people I care about most. I am looking for a God who put my choice of person in power over my country or my political party. I am looking for a God who appreciates my preference of worship, who appreciates my style of mu music, of my liturgical practices. God, fit my mold. This is who I understand you to be fitted. <laughs> and Jesus' response to us is the same response that he had to these Pharisees. I can't and I won't fit your mold because you are blind to what I am trying to do in the world. I'm dramatic, I know. <laughs> I'm glad my wife wasn't here. She would give me a hard time on that one. <laughs> we have to stop telling God to approve of what's right in our own heart, in our own minds. And we have to start seeking after the heart of God. Right, the Pharisees, they aren't seeking after the heart of God. Right, they have a pre-constructed mold of how God is supposed to work in the world an understanding of who God is supposed to be. And aren't you glad that Jesus did not listen to them? Because if, if the Pharisees had control of it, none of us would qualify. None of us would, would make it. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that we have a God who works beyond our finite categories that we like to put him in? Aren't you glad that we have a God who works beyond my finite understanding, my experiences, who is limitless and who cannot be bound by some kind of mold that I've created in my mind? Aren't you glad? So Mark, he ends his journey with the Gentiles. And he says, now they had forgotten to bring bread. The disciples, they get back into the boat. They've forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And so Jesus, he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Watch out, be careful. 
And they began discussing with one another, like, the fact that they had no bread. <laughs> like, come on, guys, what are you talking about? And Jesus is saying that, aware of this. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Like, do you not yet perceive or understand? Like, are your hearts hardened? Right? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Like, do you not just remember I broke five loaves for 5,000? And how many baskets did you fill up? Twelve. <laughs> and the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets did you fill up? Seven. Do you still not understand? You see, this, the disciples, those closest to Jesus at this point in the story, they still have no idea. They still don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. And they're right next to Jesus. Like, they're right next to the bread of life. And yet they don't see what he's trying to do through his teachings. They don't hear what he's trying to tell them in their life. Look again at verse 14. Just real quick. Turn, look at verse 14. What does it say there? I love this. I brought this up in class. Look, it says, they had no bread, but what? They had no bread, verse 14. What's in the boat with, like, what's, what's there? But, but they had a loaf. Okay, wait a second. Do they have no bread or do they have one loaf? <laughs> like, which, which one is it? Like, is Mark just, like, had no idea? Like, what, what's happening here? And I don't think it's a stretch to assume that Mark is referring to Jesus right there. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch because Jesus has referred to himself to this in another gospel. John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst again. You, you see, the disciples, they have their mind on things of this world. Like, we have no bread. We're hungry. We need to eat something. And we shouldn't give them a hard time because we often get stuck there too, don't we? Like, when am I going to get the promotion that I need to make it? When is my, my marriage finally going to find stability again? When is my health going to return to me? When is my anxiety going to stop controlling me? And while these are all major things that we experience in life, just like there's no bread in the boat, if we're not careful, the disciples become a mirror of humanity at large who get so stuck in this world right now that they have no care of their blindness and their deafness to Jesus sitting right next to them. You see, the disciples, they're anxious. They're, where are we going to get bread? And I think Jesus is equally anxious, saying, when are they going to get their faith? Like, when are they going to finally start seeing what I am doing here? You see, Jesus, he only reveals himself to those who are willing to come close to him. And in the next section that Tracy's going to pick up on next week, what we're going to see is that through repeated touch, Jesus is going to reveal himself, and finally, the blind are going to begin to see again. That the disciples are going to begin to understand you're going to have a confession from one of the prominent disciples of who Jesus actually is. But not today. No, today, we just sit in the boat. Today, we are just in the boat with Jesus. And we're not asking him to prove himself to us. 
We're not asking God to fit some kind of mold of who we understand he should be. We are just sitting in the boat quietly next to the bread of life. And we're praying and we're asking him, open our eyes. Help us see what you are actually doing in the world. Not what I expect you to do, what you're actually doing. Help me hear what you're actually saying. And God, I pray that as we sit in this boat, that you will give us eyes to see, you will give us ears to hear. I pray that you will open our eyes to the extraordinary life of Jesus and the ways he is still living and moving in our lives through your spirit. God, I pray that you will give us ears to hear and we won't merely hear the words of Jesus that come from his lips, but that we will actively seek to apply them to our own lives. God, help us. Help us break the mold of the image of you that we have and we we hold so dearly to our heart and help us realize that your love and your grace and your goodness, it can't be contained. There are no limits. And while your grace might not be unconditional, it is unconditioned. There is nothing that we have done or can do that can earn your love, yet you give it to us regardless. And God, be with us as we sit in the boat with you. Reveal to us your kingdom and our part in it. And we boldly ask that you will shape us, not us shape you. Use us, God, to bring about your love and your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.